Welcome into this Five Clubs conversation. I'm Gary Williams. Consider where we are at this time of the year. We're kind of winding down the tournament schedule and what is now kind of the fall portion, what is no longer the wraparound schedule. This has been the most turbulent ride in PGA Tour history. Why? Well, because of the creation of Live Golf. Well, somebody who has written as well as anybody about everything in golf, specifically the professional game over the last 20 years, is Alan Shipnuck. And more recently, he wrote about Phil Mickelson. And it was a rollicking ride to talk about his career. And on the heels of the book about Phil comes his new book, Live and Let Die. It's about the creation of Live Golf and all the inner workings with all the people involved from Jay Monahan to Yasser and the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia to Phil Mickelson, Brooks Kepka, Roy McIlroy, Tiger Woods. It's a screenplay. It's a hell of a movie, but it's a brand new book and it's a heck of a read. Alan Shipnug joins me next. This Five Clubs conversation is brought to you by Golf Pride. Golf Pride knows that a grip isn't only a grip. It's the one piece of equipment in your hands on every single shot. And you might not know it, but it has a huge impact on your game. In fact, Golf Pride recently conducted a first-of-its-kind study showing the impact of worn versus new grips. It showed that, on average, a focused grip of adept golfers gained an extra two yards of carry when they played with new grips. So what are you waiting for? Refresh your grips, refresh your game. Visit golfpride.com today to learn more. Golf Pride, respect the grip. And with that, we bring in the author himself, Alan Shipnuck. Alan, my friend, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks for having me, Gary. Thank you for doing this. You know, I've said this about your writing for forever, really, provocative. Um, and you seek out not only the biggest stories, you seek out people that are unfamiliar to most and you make them interesting. In this case, it's like, a, it's like a, an amalgamation of all the things that you would ever write about. The, the, the folks like James Hahn that people don't know that much about, uh, to all the stars in the game. I wanna start with the biggest star because on the heels of your previous book, which was about Phil Mickelson, one of the early chapters of Live had to do with things that were in that book. So let me start with your relationship with him. Do you remember the first conversation you ever had with Phil Mickelson? Yeah, it was in 1994. It was at the Honda Classic. Um, it was, I was an intern at Sports Illustrated and it was the first event they sent me to, to cover. I was, to, I was Jaime Diaz's errand boy. <laughs> You know, he was senior writer and he was like this god of the golf beat and like just go down there and follow Jaime around. And um, and so Phil had uh, had broken his leg skiing and um, somehow I, I, I and Fred Couples had blown out his back. And so Jaime wanted me to like do some reporting on the on on what was happening in that moment. In professional golf with these stars were were going down and somehow I through, uh, I guess a, a lot of dog and determination. I got Phil on the phone for about five minutes. And, um, that was, that was the first time we spoke and he was, he was, he was funny. And, you know, he was sort of self-deprecating about this, this ski accident he'd had. And, um, but yeah, in, in person, um, I, you know, that was back when he was, he was the next Nicholas, right. He had, he, there was just a, a star quality around Phil and he, he was in, endearing and engaging and um, he had that big rakish grin and uh, there was there was just an energy around him that was really unique of course this was before Tiger Woods made the scene I mean he, even though he hadn't he was he was ascendant it felt like he was the biggest star in the game to me um, because he just had that charisma so uh, yeah he made a very strong first impression on me he's uh, I mean Look, he's a TV star. He always has been. Uh, he was built to be in this arena. It's interesting you mentioned a skiing accident because there have been times in his career, in his life, 
where he's gotten over his own skis when it comes to subject matter. And he has this like full of shit quotient. And some of it is like, it's all, it's all BS. And some of it is like, well, you know, he's taking the time to become versed enough and whether it's derivatives or whether it's, you know, Roman history or, or whether it's golf in this, I, I don't know where he is in terms of how far over his skis he currently is. Um, but when, when the, the quotes from the book, Phil, got, got plastered everywhere on the Sunday of Riviera, when it looked like Liv was getting ready to launch, um, I don't know where your relationship with him was. Where did it go right after that? It was more or less the end of my relationship with Phil, and I was okay with that. It was such a monumental story that Phil Mickelson had become kind of this, this secret agent helping to launch live golf that it had to be told, you know, it was one of the biggest questions in the game at that moment was what does Phil want? Because everyone knew he'd been working both sides of the street with the premier golf league and then with the Saudis, but it was not, his role was not widely understood. I mean, and, and part of this, this new book that I, I tried to, one of the things that drove me was the entire story happened in the shadows like every every deal every handshake every conversation every time the money moved around there was no press release there was no press conference like it was all secret and i felt like it was my job was to bring all the stuff out into the daylight for golf fans and other stakeholders in the game to really understand how we got to this incredibly complex divisive moment in the sport and um so the things that phil told me it was in some ways began the live golf year because they hadn't played their first tournament yet. They hadn't even announced. I mean, everyone knew it was probably coming, but it wasn't clear. Was this still somehow related to the PGL? In fact, you know, they had broken, the Saudis had broken from the PGL. Um, and what, what, what was the, what were the forces in play here? And what, what were the true feelings of the players who were involved? And Phil laid it out very bluntly, this roadmap. It was like the state of play. And, that was when I think a lot of people started paying attention because, you know, the premier golf league had been knocking around for years. I mean, it, it first went public in 2018, but they'd been having conversations way before that. So call it five years of the premier golf league being whispered about and discussed, but never really publicly. And so, and the Saudis were aligned with the PGL. They had pledged $500 million, but when Jay Monahan swooped in, created the strategic alliance between the PGA Tour and the European Tour. That basically killed the PGL. And then the Saudis decided to go at it alone. And, and Phil switched sides. He'd been a huge booster of the PGL. He went all in with the Saudis. Although at the same time, you know, he went to the Silver Lake Private Equity Group in New York, tried to get them to fund his own breakaway league. I mean, Phil was working three sides of the street simultaneously and negotiating with the PGA tour in case he stayed so, so trying to make his lot better on the tour. So he was the center of the maze. Like he was, everything went through Phil and to, to bring his role to light was crucial for, for fans and people in the game to understand what was really happening. So I knew that it was probably going to um, end my access to Phil and, that he was probably going to be upset with me. And I was willing to pay that price because it was a monumental story. And um, so that's okay. I mean, I've, I've, I've approached him a few times since then to, to fact check things with him or to ask if he wants to comment. And he, he sort of brusquely declines. And um, that's, that's how it goes sometimes in the big leagues. Like when you, when you have to break a story of a monumental significance, sometimes people are going to, uh, object to it. And, you know, I'm sure you saw that Justin Thomas came after sure. me on Twitter last week. Um, you know, his critique was that, you know, I'm, I'm sick of Alan Shipnuck not writing more positive things about the game. And I would argue I've, I've done hundreds of those stories. Yeah. I support I that. Love, yeah. I love, yeah. I love telling underdog stories. Like my, yep. probably my favorite thing I've ever typed is on Cameroon, you know, uh, Jose de Jesus Fernandez who, who crossed the, the Rio Grande as a teenager and, and made a life in golf. And, um, you know, I've, I've written about the glories of the buddies trip and celebrated these obscure golf courses. Like I love telling those stories, but we are in the middle of the most contentious period in the history of professional golf. There has been tremendous collateral damage in this story for, for individuals and for institutions. And 
my, my job is not to sanitize that. Like I'm here to tell the whole story and to reveal the human foibles that have, have gotten us to this point. So I'm sorry that, you know, I'm just as Thomas, he wants, he wants PR. He doesn't want journalism and that's just not my job. And so, um, that's part, you know, I knew going into this book, passions were aroused. The people had really staked out their position. You're pro live, you're pro tour. There was no room in the middle for anyone to try and tiptoe. Like it, it was so polarized and so emotional. And so I knew if I, if I wrote a very clear eyed book that, that, that went deep on these things, that there was going to be some, some ruffled feathers and some hurt feelings and some people were going to, you know, there'd be some, some shrapnel whizzing above me. But again, that's, that's the job. I mean, to tell this story honestly and completely, that was my mandate and what, whatever, whatever, however that played out and whoever felt like they were uh, diminished in the telling of the story, that's really on them because I tried to treat everyone thoroughly and fairly, but people made mistakes and, and people made bad decisions and, and people kind of lost their minds along the way, whether it was Jay Monahan, whether it was Phil Mickelson, even Roy McElroy, who's been celebrated for his diplomacy. I mean, he's, he's sort of turned into the biggest troll on the PGA tour and he, he made it very personal and he was taking shots at a lot of people. And, uh, so th this this story sucked in everybody and uh, I didn't want to pull any punches in, in the telling of it. And so, you know, whether that's Phil or whether it's Justin Thomas, they can they can object. But I don't I don't have any regrets because I felt like this story had to be told. Yeah. You know, Alan, I whether it was, you know, I had Armin on recently and, and to talk about the, the, the book that he wrote with Billy Walters, or whether it was talking to him about the book he and Jeff Benedict wrote about Tiger. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's specific to golf, but I've covered all sports, as have you. Golf has this this unwillingness to 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 be humanized. It, it's like they've got something to lose. It's if the kind of the reputation of the game has to be upheld at the sacrifice of us learning more about these people. And I have always found that, that the warts make most people more endearing. Like, I, I know that, that you're not perfect. And that's, that's, all part of, that's all part of all of our journeys. And there's nothing in this book that I went, oh, that guy seems a little bit more douchey. Or, or I can't believe he said that. I believe all of this. Because this, the turbulence associated, Alan, with this period is so unprecedented. So people's reactions to somebody else's decision-making or something somebody might have said or something somebody might not have done, like Jay Monahan and his unwillingness to have a conversation with the Premier Golf League, those are like monumental mistakes um, that a lot of people made. Like, I, I didn't read this book and go, wow, they, they seem less endearing to me. I actually found a lot of these people to be not only more human, but more likable, even though the things associated with the things they said in this book might not have been that positive. It's like we're real here. And that's what I found this book to be exceedingly real, considering as somebody who's covered the game for as long as you have, these were unprecedented times. So with that, with that pontificating, as I've just gas bagged <laughs> for three minutes, let, let me start with let, let me start with Jay Monahan was one of the biggest mistakes he made, the early mistake to keep everybody who wanted an interest in the PGA Tour at arm's length, starting with the Premier Golf League and Andy Gardner and that group. Was that a colossal mistake on his part? It's interesting because he, Jay had the same approach to the Premier Golf League as with the Saudis. And it was take a very hard line, no communication, don't talk about them publicly, don't meet with them. And it worked like he, with the Premier Golf League. He basically sunk that entire enterprise. And you don't hear anything from Andy Gardner. You don't hear anything about the Premier Golf League anymore. Um, so it he was validated early on. And however, his he failed to recognize that the Saudi threat was very different. I mean, the problem with the Premier Golf League is it was undercapitalized. Like they just would not go all in and pay the players enough to, to take that leap of leaving the tour. And Monahan, I mean, if he had done any due diligence, would know that that the public investment fund had a little bit more money than Andy Gardner, who was just this London lawyer who dreamed up this whole idea. And so, but he 
he'd been validated the first time around. And, you know, everyone knows that, or a lot of people know that Monahan was a college hockey player and mm-hmm. around the PGA tour headquarters, the dark side of his personality has a nickname. It's, it's hockey J where he gets really pugnacious and his eyes kind of narrow and there's a coldness and a meanness. And it's like, he, he treated the public vessel fund like it was a puck in the corners. He was trying to muck out and he just started, you know, he started throwing haymakers in his own board meetings. Like, so a really key moment in this book is in, in the spring of 2021, after the Premier Golf League blows up, the Saudis move their $500 million commitment out from the Premier Golf League and they decide to go at it alone. And their number two guy, Majed al Saroor, sends this letter to, to Monaghan. This is in April of 2021. And he says, uh, we want to invest in golf. We want to invest in the PGA Tour. We'd like to partner with you. Can we please have a meeting and discuss all the possibilities? It's very... I've. This letter's never been made public. Only two people on the planet had a copy of it. I got my hands on the letter and it it's very conciliatory in its tone. And it's all this is all in the book. And Monahan, instead of just picking up the phone or, or meeting with this guy to see what his hopes and dreams were and his aspirations and how they could be leveraged, like he he knew who Majed was because Majed was already negotiating with the players. Like they were aware of this threat now. But Monaghan went in this board meeting and Charlie Hoffman, who was a player director, asked, why aren't we having a conversation with these Saudi guys? And Monaghan said, we are at war. You know, we don't negotiate with people who are trying to destroy the golf ecosystem. We are at war. And that set the tone for this entire era of divisiveness. And it's just, it's a, it, considering he has a fiduciary duty to the tour and its players, it is mind boggling to me that he would not have the conversation now he could have he could have ultimately decided it wasn't in the best interest of the tour to go down that road and that might have been defensible because it's a very saudi money is very emotional issue as we've seen Mm -hmm. but to not even have the conversation it's crazy and that touched off you know this whole the last two and a half years of of ugliness you know that we are at war mentality now of course monahan when the tour was running out of money, had had to, you know, basically sell his soul and forge this armistice with these very same people. But it became so much harder to do because he had demonized them and he had he had made it a more a moralistic issue. But so yeah, I mean, if Jay Mon had a time machine, I think there's zero doubt he would pick up the phone and call Majed, and he could have co-opted them at the very beginning before Live was even a real thing. So it's a it's a colossal mistake in all of this. The um. You know, Alan, there, there are several people who uh, you give, um, and it's really kind of sad. And I, I, I knew that the relationship Greg Norman had with his father uh, w- was less than what would have been ideal for a father and son. There was, there was something that was left unfulfilled in the son with respect to, and I, I thought that that was important for you to give that type of framework to, to, to the reader um, also, I think that you give people a really good foundation of what Saudi Arabia as a nation is. I don't know where you got that. I don't know if you had you had research consultants that gave you an even better understanding of the geopolitical background and the history of that country. Were you a poli sci major? I'm just curious because I'm, I'm serious. It's like <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's like really it's like read that to i'm not suggesting it's a history book on saudi arabia but it's an important framework where did you get that from yeah so that's that's chapter five of the book and it may be too much for a lot of readers and if so it's important um, it's important i I think so because why how do we get to this moment where saudi arabia is willing to spend billions of dollars on mere golfers just to cleanse its reputation and so you, I mean, it starts in 1938 when they find the first oil and I trace this whole complicated alliance between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, the road to 9-11, the rise of MBS, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. Like these are all fundamental pieces of the story. And um, I, I was not a poli-sci major, but I felt like it, like I was back in college researching that chapter, you know, reading books, talking to experts, interviewing ambassadors, like just to... I mean, I read the 9-11 commission report front to back twice, like just to understand and then try to synthesize it in a way that is accessible and readable for, for, uh, you know, the casual golf fan who wasn't, didn't really sign up for this, um, this much history, but it, it's so fundamental to this story. And, um, 
that's, I try to take that attitude on this book where, uh, this is a golf book without a lot of, a lot of actual golf. You know, I have fun, like at the 2022 open championship going between the ropes of Rory when he was trying to win the, it would have been the seminal moment as this whole battle was raging and it would have been symbolic if he could have won that tournament and thwarted, you know, Cam Smith, who of course became one of Liv's key guys. And, um, so I, there is, there is some fun golf stuff in it. And I, I go deep on some of the tiger stuff, but, um, I felt like people are going to come to this book who maybe not were hardcore golf fans, but I mean, th this story's crossed over out of the sports yes. page. It's been on the business page. It's been on the front page. So, um, you know, there is a, a little history about how the PJ tour was formed and this, this breakaway insurrection with the PJ of America led by Nicholson Palmer. I get into the Greg Norman's yep. uh, world tour idea in the nineties, because that's obviously crucial. Um, the rise of the super agent and Mark McCormick and Arnold Palmer and how, how the agenting industry works, because these guys were at the front lines of all these negotiations between the tours. Like no one knows who these agents are, but they're, they're fundamental to this story. And so whenever I had a chance to step back and kind of add more context and add more history, I had to try to have some fun with that. Not, not going so deep that you lose the reader, but, but kind of telling some, some fun little no, tales along the way. It was, Alan, it was great. It was, it was, I thought all of these arteries, you know, importantly merged into what was this reservoir of, of contentiousness, which was, which was rising between individuals and the tour and live. And, and like you said, I mean, it, 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 it was beyond just golf. I mean, people were taking sides merely because of where the money was coming from. Um, the Tiger thing, you mentioned his name. It's, it's really interesting how XL and here's Mark Steinberg and Mark Steinberg and Jay Monahan had a relationship going back to the infancy of Jay Monahan's career and, you know, like not knowing exactly, you know, where he wanted to be and what he wanted to do. So that existed. The fact that Thomas Peters was the only XL client who wound up taking the, the Saudi money and, and here's Tiger almost working in the shadows and, and speaking when you asked a few things of him very cryptically, like, well, did you, and I'm paraphrasing, did you have, con well, not necessarily, but it's not to say that I can't, you know, have, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's like, yeah. how would you describe his role in all of this? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, there, there, it's a dark day for Tiger Woods that nobody wants to talk about, but his car crash in 2022. Yeah. Um, and he's always batted away questions by saying it's all in the police report. Well, <laughs> indeed, it is all in the police report. You know that he was on a residential twisty street, speed limit of 40 miles an hour, going in the mid 80s. And the black box on the, the car revealed that throughout that whole accident, you know, the accelerator was depressed with 99% force like he was stepping on the gas and that could not happen if you were distracted by your phone or if you fell asleep as some people speculated like it, it just it wouldn't happen and so something went wrong that morning for tiger and we'll never really know what it is because his his inner self is this well-guarded fortress but um that you know that day changed his life and certainly as a competitive force um it, that was taken away from him. Hopefully he can summon some magic and give us a few more thrills, but he's never going to be a week in week out force in the PG tour. That's obvious. And, and so he needed to find a new role in golf and he needed to find new meaning, you know, Tiger, he reveres Nicholas and Palmer, but he's never been beloved like them. You know, he was a much more inward personality, kind of this brooding presence, didn't have a lot of close friendships in the game. And it began with his, his back surgeries and, and already where he was kind of on the shelf and he had to reinvent himself. And I think it was accelerated after the car crash when he realized he needed more human connection and needed more of a purpose. Um, if it wasn't going to come through hitting golf shots anymore. And Liv arrived and it gave Tiger a focus. He was going to save the PGA Tour. Like for him to get on the plane and summon all the players in Delaware for that meeting. That was the first time that was the first counter offensive in this battle for the tour. It had been on the defense this entire time, hemorrhaging players. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, Tiger rallied the guys who were left. And that's when the tour began to reshape itself. And it was through his efforts. And obviously he's trying to protect his legacy. 
82 wins is a monumental achievement on the PGA tour. If all the best players leave the PGA tour and they go to live golf, then the meaning of a PGA tour win is devalued. Tiger's very prideful of his achievements as he should be. So protecting his legacy through the tour, there's a selfish element to that, but he did not have to put himself on the front lines of this battle. You know, now taking this new board of directors seat, mm -hmm. Tiger's never wanted to be involved in tour governance. He never did it when he was the best player on the planet. Um, so this, this fight has given him something larger to believe in and it's connected him to this generation of players, you know, Will Zalatoris, you know, he he didn't really know Tiger. They never even really talked until that Delaware meeting. He walks in the room and Tiger starts chirping at him about the shot he had hit, you know, in Memphis the week before. And I, and you know, Will told me that was like amazing, like to have Tiger talking trash, like that that meant that meant the world to him. And and so it's become this bridge for Tiger to this this whole generation of players that he never got to know because he was just hurt and and everything else. And so. Uh, it's it's fascinating and really probably the dark one of the well he's had a few dark days in his life but yeah. that that car crash in a way stands alone because um you know honestly it reminded me of junior Seau. you know he was that great football player mm -hmm. who wound up taking his own life but before that he'd been involved in a single car accident and a lot of his the people in his life were very worried like they've they tried to rally to him because the story didn't add up and they, they thought that was a red flag. And so for Tiger to emerge from that accident and whatever caused it and whatever went wrong that day, um, that wasn't mechanical. It wasn't a mechanical failure of the car. It was more internal to Tiger. And um, Live Golf has brought him back in, in a weird way. It's given him something to believe in and it's it's connected to him to, him, to his peers in a whole different dimension. So. Yeah, it's it's part of Tiger's legacy now, and and, and it's, a, it's a nice part of the story, I think. Do you think, Alan, how much of of the fuel that he has gotten from this has been derived from Phil being the one leading the mutiny? I remember 10, 15 years ago talking about, okay, well, golf has to have, prepare for a life after Tiger and Phil, right? Like that was a talking point that they're not going to be around forever. Well, apparently they are because, you know, <laughs> Phil almost won the Masters this year. You know, he's he's still dining out on the winning the PGA Championship. Tiger, you know, he won the Masters only a few years ago. Like these guys refuse to see the stage. And then you get into the business world. And yeah, I'm sure that that gave Tiger a little extra juice because he loves to tweak Phil. Um, they're sort of, they were frenemies, you know, to do those made for TV events, but you could feel it wasn't real chemistry there. And I think Tiger's happier when, when Phil is a foil and a rival as opposed to a friend. And, um, and this was just, it was red meat for Tiger because it was something he believed in already. It was, it was a way to further distance himself from Phil. You know, they were, they were of the same era and there was a period there, you know, especially after 2009 where, you know, Phil had Tiger's number, like he was beating mm -hmm. him regularly. Um, you know, you think about the, probably the greatest win of Phil's career that, that was not at a major championship was at 63, he dropped on Tiger pebble beat and tiger shot 74 and looked so diminished and 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 beaten and um so yeah this that that's kind of how their competitive careers ended and you know phil winning the pga championship kind of one up tiger like you know hey your your body's broken you can't play this game anymore i'm still at a high level now the saudis have made me the centerpiece of a whole new tour like it was very validating for phil and so for tiger to come in and be like ah oh, not so fast i'm going to i'm going to take away what you've built here and i'm going to diminish it and i'm going to return the spotlight to me and i'm going to be celebrated as as this this white knight who's come in and saved golf like of course that was immensely satisfying for tiger no, no question uh, the the norman thing let me let me get back to him for a moment because you know Part of me thinks that there is there's a sympathetic quality, which is hard to I, I, it's hard to associate him with sympathy because there's there's a narcissism um, that is just so just run amok. I guess all narcissism is just run amok. There's no governor with narcissism. Um, but 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 he is. And, and what he did to you in London, there was there was a pettiness and a, almost like a borderline thuggishness to that, that it's like, really? Like you're really behaving this way. In the end, how do how do you think it all looks for him five years from now? It's interesting because 
I actually developed more empathy for Greg Norman in the reporting of this book. You know, I, I didn't really know how complex you alluded to it earlier, you know, his relationship with his, his dad yes. was, and it's created this hole in him. He can never fill. And that was his motivation as a player was to prove his dad wrong, that he did not make a, st a mistake by becoming a pro golfer. And there's an incredible passage in this book where at the 96 masters, after after you know one of the worst collapses in the history of the sport uh, of course everyone remembers Faldo gave him that hug on the last green but you know norman norman's in the locker room and he says to a confidant you know my dad never hugged me like that was the best hug of my life and it's so poignant like here's a guy by any measure whether it's it's dollars trophies world ranking points ferraris whatever it is he's he's done it all and yet there's just this emptiness inside of him that comes from being like this little boy who wanted to be hugged by his dad. Like it's, in, it's incredible. And on any human can relate to that. We all have relationships in our lives that haunt us, that are, that are unfulfilled, that shape us. And, um, uh, and, you know, then Peter Jacobson has an amazing quote in the book where he says, if Greg Norman had not choked away that masters, we never would have heard of live golf. And it's funny when you think about it, but, it may be true. Norman's legacy would have been so different as a player and as he would have had, he would have been fulfilled that he would have not have needed this gratification of live golf to bring him back into the spotlight to, to validate him. And, you know, Norman and, and Mickelson are similar characters in that way. Like um, this insatiable need to be right and to be smarter than everybody else. And so um, it's easy to turn Norman into a cartoon character, you know, with this, this abrasive ego and, um, he has that as well, but he's he's a very complex, contradictory personality. And um, on some level, and it's part of why I like the, this book is that the protagonists are very complicated. Yes, they're not they're not black and white. There's not a good guy and a bad guy. And like even Norman in his own way, this this agent of chaos, he has he's had this idea. And it's very pure that the golf should be more global. You know, he came from an island in the middle of nowhere. Like he lived it and he, you know, the, the PGA tour he joined was very protectionist and he helped open it up. And he was, a, he was an advocate for Seve Ballesteros when Seve was battling against the PGA tour and even against the European tour that wouldn't let him play in a, a Ryder cup. And, you know, Norman always was an advocate for the players rights and for globalizing the sport. And of course he was right about these things. And so there is a purity to his motivation, which is, the, the the game can change your life. He would he was sleeping on a tent, in a tent on a on the beach before he got into golf. Like mm -hmm. like he knows what what golf can do for for a person with ambition and and what it and we all know the virtues of the game. And if you can export it to places that that have not don't have a golfing culture, like it can be a very positive force. So there is a purity to Norman's belief, but at the same time there is this insatiable ego. And there's this voracious greed and there's all these other things. So he's, he's not a simple character and you can extrapolate across this entire story. Like you take Yasir Al-Ramayan, like he would make a good bad guy because he's a shadowy figure from the other side of the world. He has all the money and all the power, but like Norman, he loves golf and he believes in golf. And the things he says about golf is exactly what Jimmy Dunn says about golf, that, you know, if we can come together through golf, we can change the world. And like Yasir is a true believer. So yes, is he trying to advance the agenda of his regime and his very, very demanding boss? Of course. So again, it gets complicated, like, but there is a purity there of, of, of his love for the, the sport. And so you can go on down the list. Obviously feels very complicated. We talked about Tiger. You know, Rory McIlroy has been celebrated as this, this great statesman and ambassador. And he was that for the tour, but he would also turned into a troll where he was taking a lot of personal shots at people. He was, he was talking a lot of trash. He, he made it, he made it was a professional decision for a lot of people, very personal. And he does have tremendous business interests through the PGA tour that he's trying to protect. And, you know, I have some live golfers talking about that in very blunt terms yes. and, um, and that's okay. But it just, as you were saying at the beginning, Gary, it makes, it makes Rory more complex and more interesting because he's human. Yes. Yeah. There, there's a petulance that I think rears its ugly head with him at times. And, and whether it's trolling somebody, whether it's, whether it's comments made, you know, and, and with respect to him, he's a bright guy and, and he's curious and he, and he's around people 
who have done, you know, impressive stuff. Jimmy Dunn has plugged him into the Wall Street community. And, and by virtue of that, his, his portfolio is impressive. But he's been wrong about things, including live, dying a lousy death, and a quick one. And, and he's not the only one. Like, Alan, why have so many bright people who either play the game or cover the game been so damn wrong about live and the idea that, well, you know, it's dead on arrival and Greg Norman's going to have to play. And that was a petulant line from Rory. Like, he's going to have yeah. to fill the field. And, and others saying, well, they, they won't even make it through their first season. I, 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 why have so many people been so wrong about Liv's ability to stay alive? Because they've been in these silos and they, they're only getting part of the information. And this, but Rory's this, gotten all the information and he's been wrong. Well, he's gotten all the information from Jimmy Dunn and from Jay Monahan <laughs> and the people around him. And, and, you know, I was one of the few people who was traveling on two passports going between both the tours. Yes. And so the PGA tour guys and a lot of the traditional golf press who, and even some of the new media in the golf press, they were, they, they quickly took the tour's point of view and they weren't, they weren't going to live events. They weren't talking to the live people. And so, you know, when this, this, this framework agreement came down and I was, you know, I was saying yes, years now, the guy who's going to make all the decisions and the, I was getting so much pushback. Oh, look at the board of directors. The tour has a majority. Well, we, we've seen what a mess tour governance is. And Yasir blew up the entire process over cigars with Jimmy Dunn. Like there was a player advisory council. There was a board of directors. There was a whole defined governance structure. And that was completely circumvented. So, but people put so much stock in what, what Jimmy Dunn and, and Jay Monheim were saying, oh, we have control. We have control. No, you don't. The money's the power. Yes. Yasir has the money. But no one wanted to recognize that. And um, and it, it even goes back to, you know. And by the way, by the way, as you're reporting this and, and as somebody who's just sitting here following it, 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 and I don't know that you've ever been thrust in this position before in your career, it, it was as if people were thinking you were taking their side by simply reporting what it was that, that you were reporting. Like simply by being at a live event, you were an advocate for live by suggesting yeah. that the chairman of the board, which is the source of the money, is the boss, as if suddenly that, that <laughs> we're gonna re, that the paradigm of, of, of governance and, and the way that a corporate structure is, has been known to us since, <laughs> since the beginning is going to be recalibrated. Like, no, you're yeah. just simply saying that's, I, I found that to be borderline comical. Yeah, no, it's true. I Everyone took a side in this story very quickly, and it, it's symptomatic of modern life in America. We see it in our obviously our national politics. Yep. Like, there's no room for debate or nuance. You can't even discuss the issues. It's like I'm right, you're wrong. That's it. And I tried to stay down the middle of this story. And in this book, I'm not imposing my own beliefs or my own thinking. Like, I'm trying to be a tour guide through an incredibly complex landscape. And, and give people all kinds of fresh information and insight and perspective. But I'm not telling people who's the good guy and who's the bad guy and who's right and who's wrong. I want, I want the reader to decide that. And But because it's been so polarized, just by virtue of trying to thread that needle, you know, I've been accused of being a, a live shill. I've been, people have said I'm pro PGA tour. Um, the fact that no one really knows how I feel, like lets me know I probably did my job effectively, but uh, it's, it's been, it's been an interesting, it's been an interesting time in the golf media because, you know, Brandel Chambly has been out front, like his job is to offer opinions, but it, it's, it's spread through the entire media ecosystem. And I mean, reporters who I respect have, have ever set foot at a live event. And they've told me face to face, like, I have no interest, you know, I don't really agree with it. I don't want to go. It's like, man, your job is to report. Like you should go out there and see what it's about and talk to people and educate yourself, but to just completely dismiss it without ever giving a fair hearing to what is undeniably a powerful force in the game. Um, I thought that was really curious. And, um, you know, my, my idea of balance is to be critical of both sides. Like, and I think I do that throughout the book and I've done it throughout this whole saga but I also celebrate people when they get things right. And Liv's gotten some things right. And, um, you know, and so is the tour. I mean, the elevated events as a product was a huge success. No question. And, 
Um, so, you know, that as we go through this tale, like I definitely take shots at people when deserve it, but I, I also pat them on the back. And I think that that is the kind of balance that this book needed because I didn't want to fall into the trap of, of legislating to the reader how they should feel or what they should think. Well, you, one thing I, I'm, I'm pretty certain was that at the beginning of June, uh, you weren't thinking the end of the book was going to be about the framework of an agreement. Uh, yeah. But then but then the CNBC interview happens um, and then the subsequent travelers meeting happens. The first time that Jay Monahan is going to meet his membership after keeping them completely in the dark about these clandestine get togethers that, that he had had with Yasir off of what Jimmy Dunn and Ed Hurley he had had by flying to, of all places, Venice. I mean, I, this is really a screenplay. I mean, the whole thing absolutely is. Um, the, the, the meeting at the Travelers, um, explain if, and you provide color in the book, obviously, um, the, the, if you had to say the percentage of players pissed off at Jay, Jay Monahan before he walked into that room was what? You say 95%? I mean, yeah, probably 99. Like, okay. It, it's, I, what, it goes back and it even informs, we were talking about Justin Thomas's tweet at me, right? Like the PGA Tour does everything to protect its players and totally. keep them in this, this bubble to the point where, of course, we all know they don't even talk about disciplinary action, which every other sports league in the world makes public. But it's this part of this coddling and this paternal um, relationship the tour has with its players. And it generally benefits the players and they like it. You know, that a lot of the players have turned over their social media accounts to tour staffers. And like, it's just, um, you know, it's very, um, it's very paternalistic. And then, but the, the betrayal they felt, it was like all of a sudden um, that, that trust was evaporated when, when when it came to this critical moment and they were kept in the dark and they, they weren't informed and they were kept out of the loop for the first time ever really and so yeah and there's a i have a quote from a, play, a guy who's on the player advisory council the t the tour model needed to change it was outdated this not-for-profit model um is, is a vestige of a bygone era when you see how much money is being invested in the um you know english premier soccer leagues um, what NFL franchises are selling for four or five billion dollars? Like, the tour needed to be able to, to take outside investment because their entire business model is just trying to squeeze all these companies for an extra million or two every year. And now, when they go to the elevated purses, they're asking for another twelve or fifteen million. That just wasn't going to work. Like spending what if you're a publicly traded company to spend ten or twelve million dollars on a golf term is already a tough justification. Mm -hmm. If you have to spend 25 or 30, that's a non-starter. I mean, the, Jay Monahan had written a bunch of checks he couldn't cash. Like the tour did not have the money to sustain the elevated purses without outside investment because the sponsors were walking away. So I don't think the players are really mad that the tour is changing its model and bringing in outside investment. That's a good thing for them. Like their salaries are gonna double and their long-term financial health. But it was the element of betrayal was that they weren't informed about it and that Monaghan had demonized the Saudis for so long and then all of a sudden he welcomed it into the family and you know if if Jay had kept this debate at the professional level instead of the personal there wouldn't have been that sense of betrayal but by making the Saudi money dirty a lot of players turned it down out of because they felt they had to like he he had very effectively ostracized the players who left and the source of the funding and then to come to find out that actually, no, we like these guys and they're our partners now. That was that was a bitter pill for a lot of players. But ultimately, the outcome is going to be outside investment in the PGA Tour, and it's going to benefit the players. So I don't think they're mad at, at, at the process, the result, but what the betrayal was the secrecy and having having force these guys to to make to buy into this moralistic argument that in the end Monaghan couldn't really sustain the um as we go forward and and again I, I've said this um after I read the book that if if you like professional golf you'll you want to read this book you you and and I'm I will be surprised if anybody reads this book and feels 
less inclined to, to root for somebody based on what they've read about them. I, I, I've found them to be more interesting, more human, more real. But let's talk about some of these individuals. Um, the, 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 you call them kind of like the founding fathers of live. <laughs> Bryson and Kepka and Phil and DJ. Um, Kepka, I feel, and again, it was partly in reading what you wrote, but, but in following this, that there was a, God, I don't want to have to do this. I don't want to have to do this. I probably need to do this for practical purposes. Maybe I'm physically compromised. Anyway, look, he was on a Ryder Cup team. He's been totally cleansed. Is there ever a re-entry point for Phil, whether it be to the PGA Tour or for some lofty ambassador position that has been bestowed on all the iconic figures in the history of the game, including walking onto that first tee at Augusta National. Alan, forever's a long time, but God, it seems like it's going to take a long time for him. Yeah, I mean, Phil was risking the most because he definitely would have been honorary starter at Augusta. He certainly would, would have been a Ryder Cup captain, oh. and he would have, been, would have been great on both of those roles. I think lead analyst on any network he chooses. You just pick all the all the positions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the fact that we mentioned earlier, there is a sense of validation for Phil because he was proven correct on a lot of these matters. Yep. And um I think in John Rahm, who's close to Phil, you know, and he said we should be thanking Liv because they they've these elevated events are because of Liv Golf, you know, that if the players can can set aside Phil's very brash personality, to um, put it mildly, um, and you know objectively look like Phil's put a lot of money in their pocket, there's no doubt he he was the agent of chaos that really helped launch these breakaway tours, which doubled every professional golfer's salary. So, I think that that on that on that score, the the players can detach themselves emotionally, but that how the live golfers beyond the ones you mentioned will be reintegrated is very personal. Like Dustin Johnson just took the money, kept his mouth shut. Yes. Did not participate in the lawsuits. Nobody's really mad at Dustin. He can come back and he'll be fine. But you know, Phil's been very chirpy and he did sue the PGA tour. He sued his former colleagues that created a lot of bitterness. Yep. Uh, so the guys who participate in the lawsuits, it's going to be a little tougher for them um, structurally and interpersonally, but, um, you know, you mentioned Bryson, like, again, the complexity of the characters, like it's very easy to say that everyone on live just sold out and took the money and that's why they went. And obviously the money is part of it clearly, but it runs deeper. Like, you know, Bryson told me, and this is another poignant moment in the book for me is like for six years in a row, he tried to get elected to the player advisory council which is really a nothing organization. They have no power. All they do is make recommendations, but it's a stepping stone in become, to becoming part of the leadership. And it's also, it's kind of like running for student body president. And when you're in high school, it's a popularity contest. And six years in a row, Bryson's peers rejected him and would not put him on this committee, even as he's doing a lot of great things between the ropes. And he said, you know, basically, I guess they don't like me and they don't care about what I have to say. And like when he said that to me, there was real pain in his voice. And part of the reason he went to live golf was because he he could he could have a leadership role. He could have his own team. He could have a voice. And he now for the first time in his professional career, he actually has friends. Now there is his teammates. Now they sort of have to be nice to him because they're bound together. But like he is thriving on live golf because he has guys to play practice rounds with and eat dinner with and to call up and talk about life. And I mean, one of his teammates on the crushers told me, yeah, you know, we give him advice. We, we told him not to try and find a girlfriend on Instagram, you know, like Bryson's never really had mentors because he's such a specific personality. Um, so was the money part of it? No, no kidding, but there's more at play there. And for Phil, as you said, he, he could have made a ton of money staying on the PGA tour and being in the CBS tower but he needed to be right. He needed to be this agent of change. He needed that validation. Um, you know, there's, you can go down the list, Sergio Garcia and Patrick Reed, like, did they want the money? Of course they did, but they also wanted a fresh start. Like they had worn out their welcomes on the PGA tour. They did not feel welcome there. They did not feel liked. Now, is that their own, their own doing? Sure. But 
Liv was a completely clean slate on a tour that caters to them. That's very player friendly. Um, and so it's not just about the money. And to say that all these guys just sold out for the money misses a lot of the nuance and a lot of what makes their, their specific cases interesting. So let me, let me get, as I wrap this up, just projecting from you, um, did, did Yasser get what he wanted? Yes and no. I mean, what, what, what all this is about is Saudi Arabia becoming part of the Western world. Yep. On the, on the, in a business sense. And so to be embraced by, by Jay Monahan and by Jimmy Dunn and for the signal that has been given to corporate America, like these guys are okay. Like we like them. They're fine. You know, don't worry about it. Like um, that's monumental. Now there was that hilarious document that leaked in the Senate appendices, yes. um, the best of both worlds, which I call is like, I called it soft core fantasy, which is really what it was. But <laughs> For Yasser to become a member of Augusta National and the uh, the RNA, of course he wants that. Who doesn't in, in golf want that? And But on some level, that's the elemental truth because that would give him access to relationships that no Saudi king or prince or ambassador has ever enjoyed. That is the inner sanctum of the Western world, a green jacket and the RNA clubhouse. And so that's what they want. So he's gotten some of it, but not all of it. Um I, but again, this framework agreement, it could, if he, if the Saudis consummate this, if Yasir is basically the boss of all of golf, then he may yet get, get everything. Mm -hmm. And it puts him in the room with all these CEOs of all these Western companies. And, you know, vision 2030 is, was dreamed up by Yasir's boss, MBS, and it's to reshape the entire economy and, and culture of Saudi Arabia. And two of the pillars are golf, I'm sorry, are sport and tourism and golf marries those in a very unique way. And so, you know, if, if Yasir can bring in uh, all this Western investment, if they can turn Saudi Arabia into a destination with, with incredible golf resorts, and they do have 1500 miles of coastline, like you, what golf has done, done for Dubai. I mean, it, it put Dubai on the map in a lot of ways with international business community. And du Dubai is just flat and dusty. I mean, Saudi Arabia has all that coastline. They have these beautiful mountain ranges. Like you could have some epic golf resorts and maybe you get Phil Mickelson to design the golf course and you get Paulina Gretzky to curate the interiors. And it's just another way to leverage the live star power. And, you know, if live can create uh, energy around golf in Saudi Arabia and, and, and carve out this whole new sector of the economy, then it's certainly worth the investment. So there's a lot of ways to measure the ROI for Yasir. He's already gotten some, and there's a lot more on the table potentially. The um, there was an there was something that was released within the last 48 hours about an event that Liv is going to conduct in early December in Abu Dhabi, um, and it and it gave this kind of it was like a tease list of who was going to be in it. It gave kind of like profiles, like a past U.S. amateur champion a past amateur champion, meaning the British amateur champion, a major champion since 2018, PGA Tour winners. Um, what do you think that is? What do, you, what, do you think that that is a, a, a pool of players that will be new to the potential ecosystem of live that has not already played live events? Yeah, it's, that's like the live Q school. Yeah. They're, they're going to, they're, and it's interesting because the, you know, the stewards of the world ranking and in, in denying Liv's application last week basically cited that it's a closed shop. But in fact, you know, players, four players have gotten relegated already and they're going to be replaced by by new players from the international series and, and other factors. And now they're going to have this Q school. Now, it's either going to be for only one spot or two. It's not a lot, but um, it's gonna, in some ways going to be the golf event of the year. You're going to have... Um, all these grinders and guys who are just trying to hang on. And if you can get, if you can get a live tour card, essentially you're guaranteed, you know, almost $2 million. If you finish last place, it's $120,000 times 14 events. Like it can be life-changing money. Alan, for someone who's Alan, trying to remember survive. the scene in jaws when they put up the money, the bounty for bringing the shark in and all these guys, yeah. they're going out in these little dinghy boats and they got <laughs> rifles and they've got, you know, they've, they've got raw chickens. They're going to yeah. throw. <laughs> this is what it reminds me of. Yeah. No, Trying that's to bring the, the big fish in. That's, that's going to be the live Q school. It's going to be amazing. So, um, 
you know, they are trying to uh, refresh the the field like that. It was not easy to sign players, you know, especially post Phil's comments about scary mofos. And so they had they had to sign who they could. But now they, they want to refresh the players. And and I, you know, I think it could be I hope they, they make a little documentary about all these all these dreamers who are trying to play for this life changing money. So, um, yeah, that, that's what that's about. So live is evolving. You know, that's always been their plan. Like they've, they've always had a, a seven and a 10 year plan for live golf. This is um, relegations part of it. These Q schools are part of it. Um, and so this stuff is finally getting onboarded and I, it's going to obviously improve the product and it'll it'll add a little extra intrigue. The um, so you said about about these years and about the vision. Uh, this is rhetorical because I know your answer. Live is going to live beyond 2024. Everyone went, well, the framework did. The PGA Tour will extinguish this, and Rory Rory hates Live, and so the brand Live is going to die a very you know abrupt death. Um, I don't think that's going to happen at all, and I know you don't think that's going to happen, right? Yeah, I mean. There was people don't even know if it lives going to exist next year. They're going to play a full schedule in 24. And interestingly, they haven't locked down all the details, but it started to leak out. You know, eight of the events are going to be international. And that the more international it becomes, the better. Because when they went to Australia and Singapore this year, they had huge crowds, yeah. tons of media attention. You go to these markets that are starved for big time golf. When you when they went to Florida or Arizona, no one really paid attention because those are PJ Tour strongholds. Um, so the, as, and as it becomes more international, it becomes more valuable to Yasir and, and the money guys who are trying to leverage live into something else, because you're opening up new markets, you're spreading the gospel of Saudi Arabian investment, and they're going to go to Korea. They're going to go to all these, these markets and, um, the end game for live to, for the public investment fund to get its money back and to make a profit is always been selling the franchises. And then the longer that live is around, the more players it can attract, the more energy it can create, the more valuable those franchises become. And they're starting to get endorsement deals for, for individual teams and for the league itself. And so um, this narrative that, that the Saudi Arabian public investment fund just burns up money and they don't care is the reason the fund is so big is because they are ruthless businessmen and they are laser focused on their return. And the only real way to get the return on live is to keep it going and sell the franchises. So uh, that's that's why I believe it'll it'll keep going. And even even if if the public investment fund is an investor in the new co, um, they're the the tour and you know Monahan and Pelly like they're going to maintain the day to day details and oversight of the schedule and things like that. But Yasir, you know, live is his fiefdom. He can do whatever he wants and if he wants to have two or even three events in saudi arabia to to boost the economy yep. of, and, and create tourism he can do that he he has total control and if they do if you know if, the, if saudi arabia is trying to whatever it is if they're trying to open up a new market in in some faraway corner of the world they can bring a live event there as as a to cement this this feeling like we're we are players on this global stage so it has tremendous value beyond just these little tournaments that are on the CW network. So uh, I do think it's going to endure, but ultimately it's Yasir's call and he's going to decide. And if he, if he gets everything he wants, the framework agreement, and he feels like maybe we don't need to live anymore and it's possibly competing with that investment, then it's possible he'll de-emphasize it. But again, it's not going to be Jimmy Dunn or Jay Monahan or Tiger Woods or Rory McIlroy who's going to make that call. It's going to be Yasir. The book again is Live and Let Die. I, I said it when I finished it. The best view of people who entertain us, and particularly athletes, are the unvarnished views. And that's exactly what this book is. It is a look at the most turbulent time in the history of men's professional golf. Uh, and I highly recommend it. Uh, Alan, thank you for taking the time that you have. I uh, appreciate it greatly. No, my pleasure. It's a high-level conversation. Thanks for all your thoughtful questions. So uh, this, is, this is a good time. Thank you, Gary. Thank you again to Alan Shipnuck. One more time, the book, Live and Let Die. And I get it if you're a fan of, of these players and they are portrayed in less than a flattering light. I, I honestly don't think they are. You're reading excerpts. The excerpts are designed. And I'm not trying to sell the book. I'm just telling you what the book is. The book's interesting. The book gives you background on things and individuals 
that give you a, a greater context of the whole conversation. Again, it's more interesting the more human people are, and that's exactly what this book is. Wasn't easy times. It was interesting times. The book, Live and Let Die. Thank you again, Alan Shipnick. Most importantly, as always, thank you to everybody out there for listening and watching this Five Clubs conversation. We'll see you next week.